0: Okay, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, can I have everybody's attention, please? We're on. Can we all um, gather around here, this little semicircle area, this little space in, under this gorgeous canopy on this very crisp and pleasant <coughs> evening here in Melbourne? <coughs> My name is Nikos Papasteriadis, and I'm very delighted and honoured to be the chair of this session, which is called Casting Off the Cultural Straightjacket, Art and Multiculturalism Today. So um, we hope to be liberating your minds, your ideas about identity and culture. We hope to be advancing new uh, propositions about the future of multiculturalism, about its relationship to the past, about the residual tensions and contradictions in our culture, and hopefully come up with some innovative and fresh ideas that will be led by this esteemed panel that I have immediately to my left, which is a panel composed of both people who are stakeholders in the cultural sector as museum directors and curators, um, and curator who's also a bit of an artist himself. Um, I'm not gonna name them yet. People who are active in policy and a esteemed anthropologist and cultural critic. And between them, they represent a range of views and perspectives on this idea of multiculturalism and cultural identity in the arts. All of them have been involved at the intersection of these discourses and practices for over two or three decades probably in some cases,
1: at least as old
0: as me. Um, But what I'm particularly excited about today is the opportunity to rethink these fundamental terms, the term multiculturalism. To what extent is it viable today? So many people have talked about um, its obsolescence, the fact that we need a new term to address the new conditions of our contemporary society, that our world has become increasingly globalised, that the nation state is less effective at controlling, regulating, and and shaping the the conditions of our everyday life, and that new forces, whether they're locally local or globally globalising, are re configuring the relationships we have between our sense of place and our forms of identity. And out of this heady mixture, there is a sort of gr- growing sense that su- this term multiculturalism has used up its purchase that it once had. Multiculturalism, which was so powerful in the 70s in terms of expanding our sense of political and cultural rights, to address the ways in which minorities could also contribute to the public discourse, to have access to services, to have an input and a role within the institutions, to in fact create new hybrid positions and services, and and to hybridise the institutions and public discourses of our society. Now That was such a powerful force up until probably the late 80s, and then we started to hear phrases like post-multiculturalism, just as we heard phrases about post-feminism, which suggests that we've moved beyond that traditional idea of recognising the values of minorities and moved into a new cosmopolitan age, an age where um, our identities are already being formed by globalising forces or by a new kind of hybridising factors. And that suggests in a sense that some of the old hierarchies and divisions that existed in our nation-state, some of the racist categories, some of the um, typologies for differentiating people had somehow magically slipped away in this new era. And that somehow we advanced into this new heightened state of global consciousness or this new more egalitarian and equal form of cultural coexistence. Of course, I'm expressing all this in a more cynical and sceptical way, but the truth is the world has changed. The conditions in which we do live today through the fact that we're all networked or increasingly networked and that global mo- mobility has created new patterns of instability and new patterns <coughs> of connectivity, these factors cannot be ignored. People don't migrate in the same way that they did a decade or three decades ago. The volatility, the turbulence, the iterative and the ongoing notion of migration today is much more a fact of life than it ever has been. However, to what extent can we say that our discourses as a culture have also kept pace with these transformations in our society? To what extent have our institutions reflected these new changes? To what extent has, uh, have we as a society developed new ways of organising ourselves and representing and understanding our sense of place and belonging in the world? So these are big questions, and I'm not sure we can justifiably say that we are in a post-multicultural sense, as, as I also believe we're not in a post-feminist phase yet. We are in some sort of peculiar in-between phrase. Similarly, the popular acceptance among some um, institutions, especially in the UK, of the term interculturalism, I think is a sign of a backward step in some way. So this is my first provocation of the night. And I don't accept that interculturalism, which supposedly says it's all about the dialogue between minorities and, and the feeding into the dominant culture, that is now the the prescribed and necessary form in which the dialogue of cultural identity and cultural difference should take. That to me seems to be more like a re-inscription of the older discourse of integration and assimilation, where it preserves the dominance of the dominant culture and puts the emphasis on change onto the minority cultures to contribute to and feed into that dominant culture. Anyway, these are some of the issues that we're here to discuss today. And some of the challenges that we're here to discuss are obviously going to be informed by bigger issues around us, the refugee crisis in Europe and beyond, the issues of asylum seekers in this country, and the way in which these issues are often blurred with terrorism. And nevertheless, what I really also want to hope to achieve today is the way in which the arts also has a distinctive role for thinking about social and ethical issues about hospitality, but also about cultural formations, about making the world anew, making us see the world in different forms with different ideas. So I'm going to ask our speakers to give particular emphasis to the way in which the arts, in fact, are leading the way in which we are imagining this transition from a multicultural to a post-multicultural world. So to start, I'm going to go first with Noor, who's on my far left, to have a first comment about these questions today, about whether multiculturalism is alive and relevant, who is shaping the discourse of multiculturalism, and what the role of the arts are in this transformation. Noor, off off to you.
2: Hi. Um, First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the land upon which we're meeting, and um, greet you all with the Islamic greeting of peace. salam Alaikum. And um, before I start speaking, I would like to say that I'm sitting up here with um, my academic heroes and people that I've quoted in my master's thesis, so I'm very honoured to be here. Um, Okay, as a Muslim curator and writer and somebody who's been working in the arts for um, quite a number of years, um, I know within the Muslim community, um, we've been a little bit slow um, off the mark in terms of uh, our um, art and culture, um, and recognising the importance of that. Or should I say, um, I guess, embracing what was, a, what was such a huge part of Islamic culture for many hundreds of years prior. And um, through, through my experience working with community and in my own research, um, what was sort of prevalent was this um, community that was coming out of survival mode So for many migrant communities, um, oftentimes when they first um, arrive in in sort of largest numbers, um, they do congregate to certain areas. Um, And the first thing they they, they do is find uh, places where they can get their familiar food, um, things that are familiar in their culture um, back home. So, you know, hence you have the schools getting built and mosques, um, you know, halal butchers and various other things, restaurants, and they, you know, start populating areas and, and you know, just sort of creating little hubs. Um, but for a very long time, what was missing in the, in the Muslim community was an arts, um, a, you know, a reconnection with the arts. And um, the development of the and the establishment of the Islamic Museum of Australia has been really instrumental in, um, I guess, addressing that sort of gap. Um, it becomes a very difficult space to work in, uh, in the sense that um, coming from a minority community, when you do start to sort of develop institutions or hubs for... For art, um, when art is such a universal language, when art previously, um, for many of the uh, Islamic uh, nations or cultures, or however you'd like to sort of uh, put that, uh, Muslim majority countries, um, that was the primary way of um, communicating something quite profound about the culture. Um, when you start to sort of, I guess, um, you start to question are you sort of closing in on yourself as a minority community where you do build specific spaces for your cultural practice, for your visual arts, for your various sort of um, cultural expressions because um, what happens then is you are no longer occupying the mainstream space and you do end up like... Um, you know, with your schools and your, your butchers and your restaurants and your sort of local areas, you do start then occupying cultural spaces the same way you occupied your daily, you know, the way you consumed, um, you know, your daily life. And that can become problematic and also maybe a little bit of a um, negative way of contributing to culture in um, the wider community, although it does have its, its place and it does have, a, you know, it, its importance, but um, there's that sort of question, and I'm and I'm being a little bit critical here, um, in terms of uh, not for the sake of being critical. Um, I think it's wonderful that Melbourne has such an array of multicultural um, museums and um, spaces specific to certain, you know, cultures and religions and um, ethnic groups, but for me, it becomes that question of. Um, disappearing into your own space and not occupying that wider space. And because the arts is such a um, important way in which we do communicate our traditions, our thoughts um, as groups, as individuals. Yeah, it's for me, it's there's always been that struggle about where do you occupy space as a minority community to um, not Become your own, um, you know, like you you become like you're segregating yourself. Yeah, you know, if that makes any sense. No, that, that's
0: a a really really important starting point because the risk is by constituting your own distinct and discrete space is that you create your own ghetto, yeah, and that you become, as you said, self-segregating, and it becomes a just a, a sort of a hermetically sealed space that on the one hand provides a platform for your community, but doesn't necessarily create a bridge to the outer world. And this was a sort of debate that was held since the late 70s, early 80s, in terms of when I was in the UK about the black arts phenomenon, and Mm. do we need, as they were arguing at the time, our own gallery spaces. And the quick conclusion was that that's a dead end and becomes a sort of designated space that that some people visit as a kind of touristic thing, but don't take it seriously. And then this new institute came about called Institute of International Visual Arts, which was meant to stimulate this into the wider fabric of the cultural landscape and saw themselves as, not as a designated space where the minorities or multicultural or third world or post-colonial perspectives on art could be staged, but rather as a platform for inserting themselves into the dominant institutions, Mm -hmm. right? So the idea was, let's become a virus that tries to transform the body of the host. However, what they quickly discovered is that the institutions, whether they're the, they're the national galleries or the art centres of the, of the, also had requirements from the government to um, fulfil a diversity mm-hmm. component of their um, annual acquittals. So no sooner did this institute come about, and then these bigger institutes realised, oh, we can fulfil our diversity quota by Having a project with Innovate once every three or four years, which Innovate will also pay for, and um, and so they, other, the institutions got themselves off that hook as well. So it's damned if you do and damned if you don't. So this is a sort of paradox that you often have, and I don't I don't think there's the right place, often, or the right kind of model, but it's a kind of different strategy that needs to be taken. Do you agree with that?
2: I think we need to, as a nation, start normalising difference.
0: That's a good way of putting it yeah.
2: so that when we do collect um, you know pub, you know public collections like the NGV, when you're talking about it might be a certain um, theme or topic, you are collecting across the board. It's not the same old, same old. And the question comes down to who are our culture keepers? Right. And there needs to be diversity in in that space as well because Melbourne um, in particular is a very diverse space and um, I don't think we reflect that in our cultural institutions. Even cultural institutions that um, showcase uh, diversity or showcase um, certain arts, um, oftentimes if you go into a meeting, um, you're sitting with... It's not very diverse. Mm. You're usually the only... Um, non-Anglo person in the room Um, and you get
0: all the non-Anglo questions
2: (laughs) yeah and it comes back to the the point you are making before about tokenism when do you as an artist or an arts practitioner um, know that your work is taken seriously or if you're like you're saying fulfilling Mm -hmm. well we need to have X amount of ethnic artists or you know people from cold backgrounds so we can get our funding this year and um, prior to my role at the IC, uh, at the Is- Islamic Museum of Australia, I was at the Islamic Council of Victoria as the arts officer there and we had the first arts portfolio in Australia. And um, through that, I started the very first um, contemporary uh, Muslim artist exhibition and that had never been done before and that was a nationwide exhibition and that ran for quite a number of years. Um, and oftentimes, I would get requests from other organisations for projects, for example. And they were basically just knocking on our door to have said that they've consulted with the Muslim community or that they have us as a partner. And I learned very quickly, because I'd be like, oh, great, yeah, sure. Oh, wow, what a great project. And I'd you know, put all this work into it. And then suddenly this project's gone ahead and it's like, oh, they were just ticking a box. Mm -hmm. They didn't really want to engage with us. And we had no real significant input into this project. Um, and that happens a few times, and you become a little bit more weary and a little bit more cynical, which is a shame. But yeah, yeah then you become also um, for other organisations the place where they tick the box. Yes, yeah. I've consulted. Yes, you know, and they've fulfilled that aspect of it. They get their money or whatever it is. So maybe the way in which um, funding is structured, like yeah. Frank, um, you know, that can be looked at to.
0: Poor so. <laughs> Frank. All
3: right.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like there, there could be ways in which we restructure things to yeah. um, av- avoid that from happening, you know, where there's genuine engagement it's not just box ticking. Yeah.
0: Let's turn to the fella on your right, Nick, who who's had his enthusiasm hijacked once or twice, I think. You've had to sort of confront some of these um, expectations and stereotypes once or twice in your career. How have you responded? Um, I agree with Nora.
3: the The thing that's interested me is how inequity has been institutionalized by organisations that um, that, and part of it is our own problem because we're so hungry to um, to be part of it that we forget how to enact or activate our difference. Yeah. And. And I think that sort of like, like that institutionalisation process uh, um, in reflecting on it, sort of like, like takes out our ability to speak independently. And in, in a way, we try to replicate that dominant culture. We try to fit into it in a way rather than actually listening to, to that other voice, the other voice that sort of like, like, like emphatically exacerbates our difference. And I don't think, it, you know, I don't necessarily agree about normalising difference. I've always argued that we should be exacerbating our difference, really going hardline and sort of like rethinking what we can do with our difference. Rather than preserving cultures, I think we should be uh, investing in uh, experimental cultures, experimental languages, the new languages that 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 come from our generation that start, start testing not only the waters of the dominant culture but of our own cultures because sometimes I feel that, that our own cultures hold us back equally mm. uh, and the tension is equally there as it is in the dominant culture and that sense of, of, of trying to break out uh, whether you're doing experimental uh, practice in in uh, Anglo or whether you're doing experimental practice in um, Arabic or Greek or Italian or whatever, you're always marginalised, and I think think that that the future in us, in thinking about your question it, is it's almost pathological to to ignore ignore that, that question. Where did the shifts come from? They don't come from central discourses. They come from the margins. They come from outside that territory. And in a way, that that part of the challenge of the future is how do we un uh, how how do we how do we detach ourselves? How do we un things that that we've lived with with for such a long time? And that process of unning, you know telling people to fuck you, it's really important. and 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 not being responsible to traditions or certain certain cultural imperatives but to actually look at the questions of social change and social transformation from a very active, very aggressively active way of creating new languages that ask a different set of questions. Because the questions that, that I think sort of like, like we've been tied to for a long time have been tried, uh, have been locked into arguing for fitting in, for acceptance, for tolerance, and I'm not interested in that anymore. I don't have to be tolerated. I don't need to be tolerated. I can speak for myself. I've got ideas, and I think that the the, the future actually actually belongs to uh, 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 asking a set of languages which we haven't even got a frame for yet, haven't we? We haven't even sort of like structured, or and in a way we don't have structures for them to be sort of like invented. So it's about inventing language. I don't want to replicate my Greek culture in order to justify my cultural diversity in this country. I want to be part of sort of like, like creating a new sense of identity for everything, not just for, for, for being a Greek artist or a Greek curator or anything, in fact, I'm not. And that sense of, of, of sort of creating a, uh, a different experimental approach is what I'm much more interested in.
0: So what you're saying, Nick, is that there is no um, fixed point that defines the margin anymore, or there probably never was. And so how would you define where this transgressive explosive force is going to come from? Is it coming from your critical imagination? Is it coming from some references in your social and cultural experiences? How do you define the margin at this point in time?
3: I used to... to, uh, One of my... um Contradictions is that that I'm sort of seen as seen as someone who's uh, comes from Marxist orientation, but I'm also conceptual. Uh, have a preference for curating conceptual practices. Now those two places don't mix. I've been told. I actually think they do, and and I actually think that that transgressive uh, thing comes from sort of like reimagining the possibilities, reimagining what what what. Uh, uh, For me, there is no margin, and it's about reimagining what are the potentialities of of the transformations and social changes that I need to sort of be working working on. And for me, they are conceptual questions, they're not just social questions. But you need the social within the conceptual in order to sort of generate difference it's not denying difference and not denying the culture but I'm not there to replicate
0: it I'm there to sort of like like rethink its possibilities so ultimately you're neither a Marxist nor a conceptualist but probably just an old avant-gardist
3: <laughs> yeah okay <laughs>
0: You're circum-
3: if, I, if I'm i I'm gonna be
0: categorized. But I, I No, but I'm I, trying to work out. Yeah, I know, I'm trying to put you in a box which you're I know uh, you can only the gonna fight your way. Out of it. But,
3: but no, it, there's it's only one thing you like more. Well, there's a there's a there's you know, it's sort of like, like there's a pathological desire, you know, whether whether it's funding bodies or whatever, you know, to to sort of put culture into boxes. We better understand it once it's in a box. You know and we think we you know we have to put it in our boxes. That's what those museums do. and and what we don't understand so well is what they exclude. And I'm much more interested in what gets mm-hmm. excluded and why it gets excluded and how we construct the exclusion in a much more positive way of thinking about about it and why that we should be turning the tables around that I'm not very much interested in museum culture anymore, I'm not interested in sort of like main stage theatres anymore because they 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 keep playing out a dead past, a dead history. And, and sort of, uh, you know, my life gets evaporates the more they get, that gets played out. I want to be present in the culture that I live in mm. and I want to sort of like, like be able to realise that culture that I live in and the only way that I can do it is not be fussed about sort of like traditions or histories or preservations or museum languages, but to, but how do I inscribe the present with myself? How do I think myself into this future with my words, my language and, and, and the collaborators and the communities that I, I work with? And that, that inscribing yourself into a present is what I think history is about, that, that you actually mm. are constructing history, not replaying, not reframing. Uh, uh, alternative is 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 not really uh, uh, a word that interests me because it's a tolerated word. I'm interested in, in how things change and why there should be change. And if we're talking about you know the, the what artists do. Artists are constantly sort of butting up against that language, that new language, that, that transform that malleability of language, to, to rethink its possibilities, what it can do rather than what it should be.
0: I'm gonna come back to you, Nick, in a few minutes, but um I want to also remind you of the 90s when you were an advocate for multiculturalism and whether you'd still be one these days and whether the idea of the contemporary, the way you're defining it, has a has a space for multiculturalism in it. But um, but let's hear from Moya, who works <laughs> with a museum which works with these issues, both in the past and the present, both historically and engaging with the present. So, Moya, over to you. Oh, Moya
4: um, Thanks, everyone, and good evening. And um, I would, too, just like to um, uh, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which you meet, the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to them um, both past their elders, both past and present, yes. and particularly appropriate considering the topic we're talking about today to make that recognition. Um, I'm feeling um, I've got my notes here, and I will go to them. But it's very interesting what Nick was saying because, of course, I'm here representing um, museums and history, uh, and and um, and I don't think that the the notion of history and contemporary issues in society are at all exclusive, um, and in fact are very. Um, intertwined um, certainly from the perspective of what we do um, at Museum Victoria and at the Immigration Museum in particular and in fact I would say we would represent the kind of the notion of the inclusive museum and uh, which is about embracing um, all people and and all cultures and I'm not saying we always succeeded in that um, but that is certainly um, uh, our mission Um, uh, to to, to be able to do that and in fact the whole notion of an immigration museum indeed is also interesting with what um, Noor was saying about the idea of uh, when we get museums that are about uh, specificity, and we've long had debates about the whole notion of an immigration museum, um, which uh, isn't one culture specific, but it has certainly been specific to a particular subject and a perception of what immigration and an immigrant actually is. Um, so, and whether that's indeed been its own form of um, marginalisation, if you like, about that whole issue. Um, of course the Immigration Museum has almost by default become the kind of what well, we like to think a kind, the, kind of, social his, the so- kind of social history of, of Melbourne and Victoria and Australia because immigration is at the crux of who we are um, and always and, and always has been and always will um, unless you're an Indigenous person. So, um, uh, so I'll be chatting to you a bit about Uh, all of that from my perspective as a history curator um, for the Immigration Museum. So I might go quickly back to my notes if you can bear with me Um, because I don't think I'm quite as good as just being able to speak so brilliantly off the cuff as my colleagues here. Um, And I guess I'm going to be perhaps a little optimistic, perhaps. Um, uh, I've taken a fairly um, uh, simple definition of multiculturalism, and I certainly would not think we're in a post-multicultural age. Um, I think it's something still we need to uh, fight for every day if we consider... um, Multiculturalism to be in its simplest and, and purest form about um, a cohesive, diverse, respectful um, society of people that are bound together also by um, civic, uh, important, fundamental civic values, if you like. Um, and and I think it was a moment of, of, of... I was kind of struck, if you like, even if I'm a bit naively, um, you know, that the Australian... French ambassador on Q&A a a couple of weeks ago um, in the flush of the Paris attacks, um, he was still able to comment that that he actually sees Australia as a multicultural success story and that France actually has a lot to learn about um, how to respond to a diversifying population and how to more effectively uh, integrate its citizens and residents. And, you know, so I thought that was an interesting um, observation and without wanting to fall into a kind of uh, simplifying the, the, our society, ignore some of the more complex issues around cross-cultural tensions and examples of where social integrations actually fail. But, you know... Um, so I think um, in terms of shaping the discourses around multiculturalism and citizenship, um, I think that that's now happening uh, in, uh, at a variety of levels and um, in many, many different forums. Um, the voices in power positions... Uh, often have the microphone, as we know, and can set the tenor for public opinion and debate, politicians, media, some community leaders, and we have seen the quality of the discourse deteriorate over over the years. But I think grassroots forums are obviously on the rise, um, especially through online platforms and through opportunities created by uh, cultural and community organisations and and events such as this, for example, and that's really critical. So I I believe arts and heritage organisations are essential to contributing to the possibility for us all to shape the discourses on multiculturalism, immigration and citizenship. And from my experiences as a curator, with most of my collection and uh, exhibition and community work happening at the Immigration Museum, um, we actually see this as a very public charter. But this is only possible if communities of all kinds are given a platform to speak and to be represented. Um, And we try and do this through the breadth of our collections that we develop, the diversity of the stories we gather and tell, the topics we address, such as immigration, identity, belonging, difference, diversity, racism, and the conversations and debate we engender. So, I just wanted to give you one little example um, that we have an exhibition at the Immigration Museum entitled, Identity, Yours, Mine, Ours, which explores personal identity in contemporary Australia through the voices of a diverse array of people reflecting on belonging, on difference, diversity and prejudice. And to produce this exhibition, we created video content to people the exhibition as much as possible. Um, with the perspectives of writers, comedians, performers, um, artists. We worked with a multimedia installation artist to create an in-body experience to provoke visitors' responses to acceptance and rejection. And we worked with a film director to create an enacted interactive experience which places visitors within a racist scenario being played out on a Melbourne tram and allows them to get inside the heads of the perpetrator, the victims and the bystanders. So this is one example of how a museum engages with the issue of multiculturalism by engaging with a variety of communities and creative practitioners. So while to some extent the museum, if you like, is still an active agent, so we're still leading, commissioning, scripting, and curating, and therefore in the power position, if you like, to be selecting the narratives to present and interpret, But those examples I've given have been ones of genuine collaboration with the stories being told those of and by the individuals themselves, the installations led by the artists. So it's critical that museums are open and responsive to new methodologies of collection, display, and programming, and that we offer genuine opportunities for public engagement so that museums can be both enablers as well as shapers of discourses such as multiculturalism. And so I think an exhibition like Identity at the Immigration Museum is both. It's the museum intervening in the discussion about who belongs with who and what's racist and what does being a citizen mean. It also presents a historical context for where the politics of race have come from and considers such notions as cultural appropriation and cultural stereotyping in popular culture. So it's one of the Immigration Museum's, if you like, overt moments of social activism, or we like to think so and not just providing a venue for debate, but actually kicking it off and taking a position. So museums are not and never have been objective fact givers but have in the past presented themselves as such and the public has assumed it as so. But museums have an important public role as trustworthy interpreters of history, social, cultural and scientific issues and as safe places where these subjects can be debated. And as long as the motives and intention of the museums is transparent, fair and accountable, then museums do definitely have a responsibility to enter public debate and even change attitudes. And we'd feel that if an object or an interactive installation or a personal story provokes a visitor to pause, to reflect, to rethink a position or feel validated even for who they are, then we would say we've done our job and it feels like this role is as important, if not more important now, as it ever has been.
0: That's um, a very benign view, and I'm sure a very heartfelt <laughs> one, but I don't want to sort of fall back into the Melbourne Sydney stereotypes, but it seems like we've had the abrasive Sydney voice, <laughs> and now we've had the inclusive Melbourneian approach. <laughs> but um, there are a lot of people here from out of state and other countries, and and what I think you've presented, Moya, very accurately, is a very Victorian viewpoint. Mm. And I don't mean that in any way, putting you inside a box like that, the way I just put Nick in a box. <laughs>
2: Never. Never.
0: But, I mean, Never. this this is true because... How come I, mean, I don't
2: get a box? It's yeah. not fair. <laughs> you, <laughs> I want one
0: too. I mean, because know, you, no, you and I are <laughs> on <laughs> the edge.
2: <laughs> oh, <laughs> we're on the edge. <laughs> we're on the
0: edge. Yeah, Hang okay. in there, yeah. there. Yeah. Hang yeah. in there. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, I mean, what I'm trying to say is that Our society has never been more multicultural than it is today at the local level. And Victoria, for its strengths and weaknesses, has never really gone the extreme discourse in terms of its polarisation about multicultural debates. Victoria's kept a more sort of centrist position around the virtues and values of multiculturalism. Mm -hmm. Hence, I think it's quite acceptable here to say that multiculturalism is still valid. But I suspect that when we look at it at the national level, there might be different tensions at play, different kind of um, forces that have been put to bear on the way in which we represent our national identity. And that's why I said that perhaps in the 80s we hit our peak during the Keating period, and then certainly in the Howard period, at the national level at least, there was certainly an attempt to correct the swing of the pendulum and pull it away from discourses around multiculturalism and shift it more towards national cohesion and, and a more uniform and homogenous idea of national identity. Now, that's my interpretation, but um, we've got an expert who can maybe speak more to the core of these issues, which is Frank, which has been at the Australia Council for some time, and you've been really at the f- forefront of these um, political, as well as policy implications for the arts. How do you see the, the life world of multiculturalism from that perspective? Sorry,
5: is he, is he- Sydney voice or
0: Melbourne voice? He's, an a, he's a, a... National voice. <laughs>
2: national,
6: national Council. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Got the big guns um, in. Uh, OK. Uh, the I work at the Australian Council for the Arts. I've worked there on three different times in my life, in my professional life. I've had life in and out of um, working in uh, different cultural spaces, organisations and um, most of them to do around arts and culture generally. Um... We're privileged today in the audience to have uh, the distinguished Professor Yan Ang sitting over there. And I was gonna take a quote from a thing that we just published in the Australia Council, which Yen and David, um, Philip Mar produced, which is promoting diversity of cultural expression in the arts in Australia. And there's a quote that um, I marked up that I was gonna use, and I think it's quite apt, which goes, um, when we're talking about multicultural arts and the arts in a multicultural Australia and looking at these five case studies have been explored, we actually have to move beyond the narrow multicultural arts perspective that frames distinct minorities as separate groups set apart from the cultural mainstream. Recognising cultural diversity is an inescapable interactive context to which arts and cultural workers respond in their working processes. The multicultural cannot be siphoned off as a separate reality. It is deeply embedded within and intrinsic to our entire society. Now the Australia Council for the Arts was one of the, well I think, I'm pretty right in saying this, was the first arts funding agency, cultural agency in Australia to actually actively put in place a multicultural policy. He started work on that in the late 80s. It went to the Arts for Multicultural Australia, then a policy about arts in multicultural Australia. It had advisory committees. We have a cultural engagement framework. It's worked in that space, in a policy context. And I don't think the debate will ever end. I don't think that you ever get to a nirvana around this stuff. There will be, like any society and any culture, it is constantly evolving, changing, shaping by forces internally and externally. Now, I'm a person of a certain age now, so I get chances to talk about anecdotes of my own personal life and my experience around this whole area of cultural diversity and stuff. In an Australian context, I don't think we'll ever address the issue around multiculturalism, cultural diversity, whatever that means, to the moment that we actually prepared in this nation to have the serious conversation about decolonization. Our difficulty about engaging in a broader conversation around cultural diversity in Australia has always been hampered, restricted, and blocked by the incapacity of us to actually have a conversation around that this nation as we know it now, nation state, was formed by a process of colonization. We took land, (coughs) we dispossessed people, we went through a process of trying to both have cultural and physical genocide of peoples that own this place we've never really addressed that so for those of us who are of backgrounds that have arrived after the invasion by the british forces and their cohorts and the prisoners that were brought with them we have found it difficult to actually enter into dialogue and it reminds me of a great quote in a book called looking for Lebrandi for someone of italian background that's a famous and seminal work for us the famous scene where she's where the the young woman is sitting on the bed with her non-Italian background boyfriend and she's explaining she needs to go home to make the tomato sauce. And he looks at her and says, why do you have to do that? And she turns around and says to him, you don't understand, you don't have a culture. And I use that quote because it, for me, exemplifies what we're talking about. You cannot have a debate about where you cha- how to change things if there is a party that actually is unprepared to deal with its own cultural background baggage and insecurities. That has been one of our stumbling blocks. And I've been privileged in my life, and I say this, that I have had the privilege to work with a whole range of people, of First, Nation, First Nation Australians. I have learnt from them. The question about you know whether we're moving into you know migration waves where people gather around so that they feel comfortable and feel they have a space and whether that leads to ghettoisation or not. If you were talking from what I learned from my First Nation friends and colleagues was, actually, there is a moment where you need to actually stake your ground, identify, control, feel strong in your own, so that you can then enter into a conversation with a sense of being. Which is of equality and not from a a marginal, uh, from a sense of deficit. I don't want to knock on your door, I just want to say I'm here and this is what I'm like. As Saeed said said to us, I don't feel like I need to have to wipe my culture off my feet when I come to your door. I have it, I bring it. Um, To go to some other stuff that's been said by some of our other speakers, I mean, the issue of, for me, around notions of, you know, um, that we have, in a sense, you know, inverted commas, provided a collective responsibility and negativity to a range of communities of ethnic origins, like Italians, Greeks, or whatever it is. Um, those, those cultures are not stagnant, they're not fossilised. They have been in constant evolution, you know. Um, I'm of Italian background. My parents were born in Italy, I was born here. Most people, in, in most contexts, make a whole range of assumptions about that. that, you know, i am most probably maybe a lapsed catholic that um i have a very strong sense of what family is um that um you know i i like listening to italian folk music or something like that or i do the tarantella and that i'm probably center right maybe you know a bit on the margin a bit you know like that none of those descriptions stay with me i mean i'm none of those things in a way my Parents, uh, you know, one of my my parents is Catholic, another one's been a devout atheist all their lives and thank God they're still alive at 92. I'm never, I went to Catholic schools but um, stopped practising being a Catholic by the age of 14. I took the conscious effort of going to the church where I was baptised and having my name taken off the baptismal records. Um, I am not conservative politically. I've been heavily involved in um, progressive political forces in the Italian community. And um, I don't do the Tarantella, and I don't listen to a lot of um, Italian folk music, but I listen to a whole range of other Italian music, which I find much more interesting. But I think one of the issues we have around saying all that in terms of Australia and where we're at with the, you know, whether multiculturalism's a term, whether we're post multiculturalism or, you know, still in a multicultural phase, I think the thing that we really have to come to grips with is what something that Nicole said at the start, which is around the global context has changed. My parents, both from 92 years of age, arrived in this country. My father arrived in '36. my mother after the, the Second World War. Their contacts with Italy were through letters. When phones phone actually arrived, it was the odd phone call. Everyone hanging up really quickly because it cost a shitload of money to do it. The local Italian-language newspaper produced in Australia, you know, in Sydney, it was La Fiamma. In Melbourne, you had your Globo run by particular political forces or snippets, bit, bit, you know, like, but not a lot about the discourse happening in Italy. And there was news that came slowly from Italy, sometimes over the radio, and we got more of that. That was that was their their interaction with Italy. So in a sense, their view of Italy was stagnant about what their memories were, right? You know? And it didn't change that quickly or didn't reflect the changes in Italian culture in, as, that were taking place in Italy. We now live in an environment where, I can guarantee you, amongst my parents and their friends, they will spend maybe four or five hours a day now watching Italian television programs from Italy of 2015 live. Yeah? That's what they're watching now. And that's been replicated in a whole range of communities out there. Their information they they are receiving is about what's happening in there countries of origin or the countries of origin of their parents about those debates those conversations taking place in those countries something that i did not grow up with and i think that is something we have to think about what does that mean in terms of when we're talking about cultural diversity multiculturalism it's no longer confined to the nation state in the 70s 60s and 70s it was pretty much confined to an internal conversation when someone says you know, the French ambassador says Australia is a very successful multicultural nation. Australia was a successful country in terms of people being able to live together without too much violence, is what they're really saying. But that those forces were, in a sense, being able to be controlled by the nation state that we were, were living in. Those conversations now are much broader and globalised, mm. and I think we have to remember our history as well. You know, I mean. uh, I remember one of my my First Nation friends saying to me once many years ago, you know, we were talking about issues around disparate voices within communities, you know, that um, Karen told me one day quite eloquently, and I always use this quote as well, which was, um, you always have to remember that white fellas don't have a monopoly on dickheads. And basically the notion that, you know, because someone is of a particular ethnic origin or background that they know that we have to ascribe to their view of it is not necessarily the case. And I will contest that, and all of the people I assume sitting on this panel have had those contestations within their communities of identity or their communities of interest, and that's part of any society. And we should not shy away from that, but in a sense, that actually stimulating that, for me, is an important thing. And the last anecdote I'll put up with is, um, I still remember Paul Keating, because Nico has mentioned Paul Keating, and, um, Paul Keating once was confronted after um, one of those great, you know, football matches, which is one of my other passions in life, the round ball game. And um, there may have been two groups of people from close proximity and origin playing a football game out in Southwest Sydney, and there may have been an issue of um, violence, <coughs> which maybe had nothing to do really what was happening on the field, but you know what would happen in other places. And someone said they should learn to leave their wars at home. Yeah? And I remember Keating, in answer to that, and at that time he was still Treasurer not Prime Minister, he said, yes, I agree with that. He said, but I do remember as a 14-year-old holding my mother's hand walking down the main street of George Street as the Irish Catholics were protesting about, about being excluded by the Protestant dominant forces in New South Wales. You know, and so that contestation is not just something that happened post-war mass migration, it is something which has... You know, you know, being part of the history of post-colonisation in this country. Not to say what happened through the colonisation process. Thanks, Frank. Um, in a way, you
0: have actually pulled together some threads that combine Nora's, Nick's and Moya's perspectives. So that was very, very useful. And in part, you've suggested that independently of our backgrounds, we find ways to create a dialogue across differences, whether they're indigenous, migratory, or post-colonial, or whatever the perspective. Question that I think that we'll have to answer before the end of the night is, is multiculturalism still a framework flexible enough for that conversation to include indigenous people? Because in the past, there was institutional barriers to that, that were imposed by both communities at a political yeah. level. Yeah. But there were always examples, as you said, of individuals transcending that. Mm. And my favourite example of that comes from a book, a classic book for cultural studies called Sheila's Pufters and Wogs. Yes. Great History Pooftas. of Australian Soccer. Yes. And where um, on page four or something, <laughs> Charlie Perkins, the great activist, yeah. yep. And yep. describes his um, return to Australia and playing for a Greek club called Sydney Olympic and saying, for the first time in this country, I feel like a man. Over to you, Ghassan.
6: You're the man. You're the man. You're the man, For Gasson. the first
5: time in this country, Nico makes me feel like a full human being. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love you too. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I want to say, to begin with, that my uh, gut feeling is that anyone who discusses multiculturalism today without being depressed is not <laughs> really in touch with reality. Uh, along with the dep- depression a little bit of anger would be good too uh, rather than depression and suicide. <laughs> uh, I think depression actually like about five, six weeks ago, I was uh, I was at University of Amsterdam, and they had a session on White Nation, and asked me uh, to reflect about what is it that I would rewrite in White Nation, and what is it that I would leave as it is if I was to write it today. And this was the source of massive depression (laughs) Uh, it was a source of massive depression because there was so much of white nation that I could write today uh, as if I'm still and so what's depressing is the sense of repetition Mm. the sense that whatever gains were made we never had either the capacity or the strategy to consolidate Mm. that we are trying to rebuild things we have built before all of these are the sources of uh, depression but also i think it's important to think of the anger because it's not some kind of like loss that happened because of some natural cause it's a loss due to a war on us i mean we have been defeated in a war directed against us by very aggressive forces that have wind down completely all the gains, not completely all the gains, but a lot of the gains that we have made. It's a war. Anyone who doesn't think, and what is interesting about this war is that those who are engaging in this war are aggressive, and yet they want us to be passive. Whenever an ethnicity, ethnic group, or et cetera, shows a little bit of anger or aggression, they're accused of something really bad, while in fact the others who are launching this war are continuously in aggressive mode, continuously demolishing. And so there's something specific. So I'm saying there's a lot of repetition, which does not mean everything is the same. There's a lot of things that have changed, but it is important to recognize that we have there's so many things that are just happening again and again and again and again and so uh, having maybe a workshop on strategies of consolidation is very good how do we learn how to consolidate things rather than just win things how do you consolidate Uh, and in an atmosphere like this to think about change, change, change sometimes can be sort of like not so productive because there's an art of repetition that is interesting too. How do we repeat? So it is very important to rethink. How do we repeat? How do we repeat such things without getting too depressed? Hmm. Uh, how do we repeat such things? And a very important situation as far as I'm concerned about this war is that it is a war by a force which cannot hegemonize. It's very interesting. It's a force that can defeat, but cannot hegemonize. Mm -hmm. So it's a force that can stop you from being multicultural in the name of integration and assimilation, but it cannot integrate and assimilate. Mm -hmm. So it can disintegrate, but it cannot integrate. That's right. And so everything is being dismantled, but in the name of the possibility of a unified culture but this unifying culture does not exist so we are getting a diffusion of multiplicity of forms which cannot be united anymore in any uh, simple way. that's why I'm not sure uh, with your comment about the intercultural and the multicultural uh, I mean I don't know the context sort of like you mentioned I agree with the comment you made about that specific form of intercultural but it seems to me that today you have to ask the question well is there a possibility of cultural relations which are not multicultural what do we call them do every does every mode of relation across culture has to be called multicultural if it's not do we want to call multicultural forms of intercultural relations which are captured by the state and therefore are molded and governed in a very specific way and therefore are given the name multicultural because maybe the intercultural contains modes of cultural relations which are totally outside state governmentality and therefore opening possibilities, I think, One of the issues here is precisely the intercultural indigenous, non-indigenous relation. Here is an intercultural relation, which historically, as Nico said, historically, indigenous people didn't want to, quite rightfully, be included in the multicultural game. They were saying, we're not just another culture who happened to be here as colonial issues, etc. And so, yeah, here's an intercultural relation which has its specificity. Now, I think today there's a lot of intercultural relations that have their specificity. That's, I think, a big change. I think when we were talking about multiculturalism in the 70s and 80s, there was a sense of unity, in racialization. That is, Greeks, Italians, Lebanese, Vietnamese, etc., relatively speaking, were subjected to the same kind of racism. The kind of racism united them in a way, because that was the same kind of racism. I don't think we can say this today. I think the kinds of racism that are being each community is being subjected to is sometimes massively different from other communities. I don't think me as a Christian Lebanese can can talk uh, to a a Sudanese about uh, the racial experience without some serious consideration about what is the same and what is not the same. I don't think we can just assume that unity under racism anymore. And I think this is, this is particularly important in thinking about uh, strategies uh, in all domains, not just in the end. And I think uh, in terms of thinking anti-racism, it's very crucial to keep that war in mind. You know, I work a lot on Islamophobia. <laughs> and it often sort of like stuns me how many people talk about Islamophobia in a pacifying way. That is, don't be scared. There's nothing scary about Muslims, right? So the idea of Islamophobia is to say to someone who is scared by Muslims, don't be scared. And usually this someone is some white colonial dead shit, excuse me, and so why is it my critical function to make some white colonial dead shit less scared? I mean, they've been scaring me for all my life, why do I want them less scared, you know? I mean, I want to make them more scared. I, don't, I don't think if they're scared of Islam, I be, you know, be scared, be very scared. Uh, I, I mean, but the point is this. That, There's always a I seat mean, next to me on the train. where where the, <laughs> yeah. and where, where the question <laughs> of Islam <laughs> is interesting because, you know, Islam is Islam. Islam is just not a religion. Islam is something that has articulated historically so much anti-colonialism. It has been colonized, over-colonized, over-colonized. And so what's interesting is that it has within it some anti-colonial fervor. Now, here comes the terrorist act in Paris and suddenly the only way you can be Muslim is either ISIS scary or be bland. Hmm. Well, I think there's lots of scariness spectrum here other than ISIS scary that I want Muslims to maintain. I don't want Muslims to say, no, no, I'm not so scary. Thank you, look at me. I just want to be settling, etc. I think that anti-colonial moment in islamic culture is still uh, important to cater for and include in our war against the white colonial dead Am I repeating myself enough about who is the enemy? <laughs> <laughs> now, now.
0: You are a Sydney it? boy, aren't you? <laughs> Deep down.
5: There's... Something That's a good line in a rock song. The function, <laughs> the function of art here. Is the function of art, because all my life, as an academic who has been interested in the function of art, working forever with Frank and with, with all of these people, mostly, <laughs> have been working about the idea that there's something avant-garde about art. There's something that art opens up a possibility of thinking, a possibility of acting, a possibility of doing something that people who are engaged in everyday reality cannot reach. And so art comes and opens up that space. Now what's interesting is that sometimes this has been taken to mean that art has to be some kind of always something that makes you happy. <laughs> that art should always open up. Look at the future, full of hope, uh, etc. That is That is where, where it leads you, art. But what if we're going on a downward hill? Is the function of art to say, be happy we're going on a downward hill? Or maybe is it the function of art to say, we're going on a downward hill. I'm going to actually do what I do best and show you what's really down there <laughs> and open up the space of real depression that is not real, but a real possibility. <laughs> now, I think too much multiculturalism that is finance, is required of it almost to be happy. <laughs> and this happiness is not necessarily some kind of like you know, a uh, productive thing. It is, it is, in itself, watching it is seriously depressing sometimes. I'm gonna begin with depression and finish with depression. So, sorry about this, but, but I hope you get my drift that there's something about needing one to always remember where we were. The fact that we're repeating things, that we are in a war, that we don't want to do the same mistakes, that we want to consolidate. You know, when I wrote White Nation, began to write White Nation, Keating was in power. And so, what was the function of critique then? To me, I was criticizing multiculturalism because I was full of hope that things were so good about multiculturalism that it, and I can actually squeeze more of it. Mm-hmm. That was the idea. You, you criticize because you wanna push it more, to achieve more and more. And suddenly, how it came it became about protecting things, and slowly it became all about protecting what's left, protecting what's left, and so your critique is no longer a hopeful critique. It's not a critique, it's a critique of, please, what, what, what are we allowed to say? So I think there's no point having an illusion that we are still in this open road where what can we get more? No, we are not, we are, stretching, and holding on to bits and pieces left for us. And there's an art of maintaining them and building on them, but with a sense of realism.
0: I agree. No more sentimental multiculturalism.
4: Is that directed at me? (laughs) No.
0: That's directed to all of us. We are meant to maintain the scary parts in ourselves. And there is, therefore, a new coalition between art, Islam, and the rest of us, in terms of maintaining that scariness. And it's true, all the jokes aside, jokes only come about because there is awkward tensions. And the awkward tension right now is because we are at a phase where we are being dehumanized with the nicest possible words sometimes, which are masking the most violent forms. I was rereading some of my notes from about a decade ago, when in an interview John Howard was asked about what he was going to do about the arrival of boats, this was before Tampa, and the journalist says to him, "What? You're going to turn the gun, turn your guns on them?" And um, John Howard, testing to see if he could get away with it, said, "No, I wouldn't do that. We're a civilized country." But he was also probing the journalist to find out what is acceptable to be said in the public discourse at that time. As one journalist after another started to say, is this the best you can do, just being doing, doing these civil things, or is it time to have a military option? And the more and more the question got posed, the more plausible it was to actually execute the militarization of a civil problem, if it, even, if, even if it is a problem. So we've now come to normalise the militarization of a civil matter to the point where even the opposition is competing in the militarization of a refugee matter, which is a hospitality issue. So we have not got a problem of consolidation, as you said. We have a problem of reclamation of a basic human principle. And so in that context, we do have a phenomenal depression to deal with and a lot to get angry about on the way down towards this dehumanised state. And in many ways I think um, the the status of multiculturalism is like a zombie sort of like a living dead thing in some ways in our country. And that's why I share with you at times your anger and, and, and depression. But enough of me. I think As a panel, we might have the freedom now to ask each other some questions. And I also um, would like to turn to the audience to see if anyone is brave enough to stand up and warm themselves and shout out a question to the panel. You're free to, yes. You have to speak really loudly though.
5: Come to the front. Just for the
7: sake of warming up. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, um, my name is Hart, and I'm, I was born here in Melbourne. My heritage is Kurdish, Turkish and of course Australian because I was born here. And uh, in 2003 I graduated from VCA in postgraduate um, studies in dance and choreography. And I decided, I came to a point in my life here and I decided... I've had enough with academia. I've had enough with Western Eurocentric values. I, I have inherited these cultures and I'm constantly stuck in academic rhetoric and jargon and I just felt so limited and I didn't know why. It was just, a, it was just an intuition. I just had enough of uh, the intelligence here that surrounds the arts in Australia, in Melbourne particularly. So I left and I went to Europe and I went to the Middle East. And I traveled for a year and I found my home base in Istanbul. And when I was in Istanbul, it was so challenging as a woman and as an artist and as a Kurd, Living in a, in a despotic country like Turkey, I'd never experienced racism as I did in Turkey. And I grew up here in the 70s, mind you. So I grew up in a very Anglo um, environment. So everything that I learned was unlearned in Turkey, which was so traumatic, but it was what I needed. Because what happened then is I was actually, I started to experiment, I started to question, really question. Why am I an artist? Why am I doing what I'm doing when I can have a job and I can so nicely fit into society and, you know, have a very kind of comfortable life, whatever that means? I didn't. I stayed there and I experimented and then I found my way to Germany. And what I can say, honestly, is as difficult and challenging those cultures are and as as racist I found my experience of living in Turkey was... They were, in a strange way, much more accepting of me questioning, of me experimenting, and I'm so glad you said experimental, Nick, because you are giving me hope at the moment. I've been back to um, Melbourne for two years, and I can't tell you the ongoing depression I go through (laughs) just coming back because I feel like when I'm here, I have to justify, I have to, people have to box me into something in order for me to even exist, you know? And when people ask me, what do you do? And I say, I'm a choreographer and a performance artist. The conversation kind of stops. You know, there's no engagement, there's no questions. And I just think, wow, you know, when I meet people and I ask them what they do, I'm really curious. And as artists, And I'm constantly around artists and academics and I don't have this experience here. And I have this other opposite experience, which is this. A filmmaker, uh, a couple of weeks ago, asked me and said, look, you come from a Kurdish, Turkish, Australian background, so who do you you connect with? So what's your culture? And I just thought, this is why I left 12 years ago. (laughs) This is exactly why I left. You know, is it really that simple? Can we really have this conversation? over coffee I've got 42 (coughs) years of unfolding and making and reinventing and changing and I'm constantly shifting and I'm in flux and it's not because I'm creating this it's because I'm shifting because my environment and my cultures are shifting yeah yeah so I, I have I have really I struggle being here I'll be really honest with you and I'm just always curious Because I always find that I'm, you know, I'm a minority in my own country and I didn't feel this in Berlin. I didn't feel this in Amsterdam. I would walk into a workshop. I would walk into a studio. Festivals were interested in getting to know me. And I would present a work and a showing and a video or what have you. I'd have a discussion. And I'm not saying it's... I don't want to romanticise Europe or Turkey. But it was a different process. And I was making progress with my practice and my art. And I've been here for two years, and I go to the dance house. I presented something at the Fringe Festival, very positively received. I've got, I've got some platforms, but there's nothing. There's nothing. There's no momentum. There's no advocacy. And I always think. Yeah.
0: I might ask Nick to comment on this. Can, you please, th- yeah. can you please comment? I think this is a struggle that um, Hello, many artists have articulated and just the other week... Um, um, just give
7: it to the
5: And
0: also,
7: the, just one more thing, sorry, because when you talk about art, there's different mediums of art as well. And if like contemporary and experimental visual arts has has you know been accepted as contemporary photography sculpture live interactive art or what have you but when it comes to performance art and dance i don't know there's not the discussion doesn't seem to exist amongst artists and i always feel like well, it's always on the margin, and it there, sh- it's a, a, it's not. It shouldn't be.
0: The margin is a, is um, a very contested space. But Nick, this is some, this is a zone that you have a lot of personal experience. You come from performance art yourself. You've often um, contested both, and you've today you even you express the resistance you have both towards your own cultural heritage as well as the dominant culture, and so that constant um, challenging of. Um, Fixed identities and and given and all the boxes that even I tried to put you in is, is something you've fought vigorously all your life. So, how do you respond to this kind of commentary about um, the trajectories and the classifications and the discourses around the arts? Uh, I agree with a lot of lot of what you what you said, and it's one of the dilemmas
3: of of how do we negotiate the new? How do we, you know, keep rethinking? How do we keep destabilising ourselves? And in listening to, to Gassan, you know, I, I couldn't help thinking that 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 with this multiculturalism term, we're always one step behind the argument. We're always, you know, we, we used the term in the 80s and, you know, we had a lot of hope resonant there and we hoped that it would unify it and it was such predictable outcome in the end It sort of we we accounted for our own failure in the in the process and that because there was a war going on and i couldn't agree with that terminology more i haven't heard it articulated as profoundly as you have gassan there is a war and the moment that we began to unify they destabilized the question by fragmenting it and that fragmentation sort of like like unsettled us. Now, now on, on one hand, we, we suddenly you know sort of it came at a time when, when uh, I I in my conversations with Nikos, I, I think that theory, multicultural theory or, or post-colonial theory flatlined. That there was no no new language there to support the arguments in in any anymore. And in a way that 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 what became very clear to me was, was that the that those terms were the terms of policy makers. They weren't the terms of artists, they weren't the terms of art. They were terms of policy makers that kept on, kept us put, putting us behind the eight ball. We tried, we, we spoke very valiant, valiantly sometimes against it. We even occupied those languages. But the moment that those languages occupied, they shifted from un, under us. Now, my argument is that I think it's time to, say if we are at war, and I think we are, as Gassan said, I actually think it's time not only to, to, to turn the tables and by exacerbating difference, what I'm talking about is reclaiming language and using it against the dominant cultures. It's time to sort of like, like start to take the initiative. And if you ask where, where, where art is, is going, it's about when, when artists think about new territories, when they they constantly destabling the norms Uh, of what we understand culture, society, justice ethics uh, uh, morality uh, aesthetics, whatever you you can it's that destabilising of of normal notions of of being, destabling (coughs) them so that we're opening up new territories, new spaces for thinking sometimes they might be wrong, but they're actually about trying to to reclaim language, to reclaim identity away from the people that constantly identify us and put us into boxes. I think the role of artists is constantly to be vigilant in, in in that t- yeah. almost to be like a guerrilla fighter in a, in a in a way to to be thinking about destabilizing because I don't want to be sort of confined to that language I don't want to be determined uh, by by that dominant discourse and 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 it seems seems to me that 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 anger is is actually a good emotion it is actually a way of talking talking back because. Uh, uh, the, the very notion of what multiculturalism was and what, whether it's interculturalism now, which I think is a little bit more open-ended, but I think stuff is the same thing, is what is permitted, what's acceptable, what is authorised, what is legitimately allowed, allowed in order for dominant cultures to sort of like justify themselves. Because they're always excluded from, they always exclude yeah. themselves from that discourse multiculturalism was something for all of us but not for them
0: right okay there's a couple more questions the gentleman in the back who's wearing the jacket that i wish i was but um (laughs) (laughs) Um,
8: i
1: just wanted to ask
8: uh, a question keating's come up a few times and um last year when there was a lot of keating love um on the abc there was a kerry O'Brien interview with Keating and he asked the question about you know um so you you made all these reforms and um you know lots of people got new jobs um you know and what about those people you know who couldn't um you know who, who had to leave their factories mm. you know um you know that they've been working for 20 30 years what about those people and Keating was you know sort of defiant he said well they all got better jobs, Kerry, um, and I don't like. I, I found that really, tr- like I wasn't satisfied with that answer, yeah. and and yeah, I mean, and so I I start thinking about class and yeah. how that, in the context of our situation. Um, do you okay. Want to talk about that. I'm
0: going to take two more quick questions because I've been already given the wind up. So, the woman just in front. Yes. The camera, the, the, the microphone's behind you.
7: Thank you. I just wanted to say something... But ma- We have to make them short. Maybe we should reclaim the word multiculturalism and not give in to it, like with museums. I'm a museum person, and museums obviously mean something different today to what you, Nick, say about it, as evidenced by what... Moya um, Moya said. And I would also ask about what about multiple identities? Isn't yeah. that much more true today? And shouldn't we be talking about multiculturalism in terms of multiple identities and exploring that? Because that ties everybody together.
0: True. And one, one last comment here it's from the front. Old, from Hoda? Um
1: In the past two days there were a lot of conversations around like n- defining multi, um, um, the minor cultures, like looking at them like from a new perspective and there were a lot of conversations around, like, um, um, uh, instead of, like, empathy and um, sim- uh, sympathetic approaches towards the min- uh, mo- uh, minority cultures, maybe we can just, like, find ways of listening, new f- ways of listening and understanding them. And as I was sitting there, uh, you know, I kind of, like, consider myself as a minor culture, as it's defined here, like, I'm, an, um, uh, I'm from Iran. And um, I was, like, actually thinking about what Nick said, um, that um, how about not listening? Uh, I don't want to be understood. I don't want you to listen to me. I, I never like ask a Western person that I don't I don't start a radio station like um, asking people to kind of like let's listen to Western people and listen listen to their stories. Uh, why there's this obsession about listening and understanding other cultures? And um, it made me think of Edward Said' point in Orientalism that he think, uh, he points out that. The problem with the West is that they try to understand Oriental. How about we try not to understand it? Because there's no way of understanding other cultures. There's no one single specific way of understanding them. We try to kind of like um, put everyone in boxes as (laughs) you were suggesting. And um, I just, uh, the biggest question for me in the past two days was that in um, a culture that there's an excessive uh, presence of migrants and um, we call it multicultural today, how the term minor as we know it today is actually relevant. Like when we uh, have a conference about minor cultures and we still like by applying the term minor, we are actually kind of like putting them in a secondary position. Those we know as minor cultures, which is actually I consider myself as one of them. um, um, How is that relevant today? How actually you... What is your perspective about Thank that?
0: Thank you. Um, questions. We have got yeah. only like about 30 seconds to give answers. 30? And I know Noor and Moya yeah. and Frank want to come in. So <laughs> I'll let Noor go first, but very short answers. And I'm sorry, these are complex questions about class, identity and minority status. But um, do your best.
2: Okay. Um, I just hosted an event not long ago with Ilyasha Shabazz, who is the daughter of Malcolm X. She came out here on a speaking yeah. tour and... Um, I was part of organising the Melbourne Town Hall um, talk, and um, I was having a chat with her, and she kind of told me off for calling myself someone from a minority community. And um, she said that language has changed over in the US, and they no longer refer to themselves as minority communities because it's disempowering. Um, But quite sort of in a a very Australian sort of way, being a minori- in the minority is um, perhaps not seen in the same way because yes. Australia celebrates no, the Mary underdog. To tell us what to be. Uh, we, we celebrate the struggle mm. um, in general Australian culture and, and the underdog. So um, sometimes language shifts even we, between um, Western countries. Different Western countries have yep. different sort of cultural norms. So, yeah, that was a sort of my experience with that word, minor Beautiful. and coming from minority community. And I still say that because it's not that you're a minority because you're weak. You're a minority because you're a smaller number.
0: Well, you yeah. also have a critical difference as well. Yeah. Moira, do you want to come in quickly? Oh,
4: I'd, I'd just say I, I, I would never use that word minor culture ever and I don't, it's not something we would use certainly in... in the, the museum context I work in, in fact, our our, our aim has been to try and democratise c- cultural diversity so that everybody is seen to have a cultural identity and that there's no major or minor about it. Now, I know there are realities about dominant culture that we're still battling every day and I understand that. But the other quick thing I wanted to say is that just in terms of museums and the challenges is um, I certainly wouldn't want to be arguing for a benign notion of multiculturalism um, Mm -hmm. but but that for museums which are state funded organisations that are trying to be inclusive in places where everybody feels that they can come and feel Represented um, and safe—that that there are still people who want to celebrate their cultural identity in very traditional ways—and who are we to say that they can't do that? You know, we, we want to talk about issues around racism and prejudice and uh, and identity and difference, and those are really complex issues that need to be uh, teased out beyond the kind of classic multicultural. Um, Rubric, if you like. So I guess I'm just saying um, it's 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 really complicated. I think for museums, it's a really, it's a very tricky fine line, a tightrope that that we walk when we're trying to grapple with all of these issues while still trying to be inclusive, still trying to be representative, and still be places where people you know want to come feel represented, feel included, but also feel that they can debate and discuss really um, difficult, complex issues around identity and racism as well. So that's all I did
6: there. Okay, Frank, final word from you. Oh, cool. Okay, uh, quickly, um, the Keating comment. Um, Keating is used in my terms as a marker of a, a historical period. There were many things that I think if we look back in that era where certain economic policies uh, were introduced, not only in Australia, but in a whole range of, um, in particular, Anglophone um, developed or countries, the rise of neoconservatism started then. And in, first it was in an economic context, but then obviously it moved into a social space. And I think we are suffering from that. There's a much broader con- conversation that needs to be had about that. About the use of the word minor or not minor, um, amongst my friends, uh, some of my friends, um, I'm happy to call each other Wogs. If other people call me a Wog, I'm not so happy. So it depends how I feel comfortable, with how I want to define myself. If I feel that I'm being defined by someone and I'm not comfortable with that, then I just don't.
2: My question is my husband, who's a seventh generation Anglo Australian, first fleeter, yeah. yeah. grew up in Brunswick. He speaks Greek. Yeah. And his younger brother grew up yeah. dressed like all his Greek mates and talking like them and hanging out with them. So, you know, what is multiculturalism? Mm. (laughs) You know, like,
0: what is it? What is it? Good question. But anyway, before we all freeze to death here, (laughs) um, I I want to really express my um, profound thanks to the team for their inner warmth and their capacity to not fall off like icicles on the edge of these seats here and and also from the generosity of the of the audience and to all the hosts here. So let's all jump for joy now and thank you very much and of course there's more drinks and nibblies which is the beginning of multicultural feast. of course. Yes.